0: couple of weeks we've been in a series called Dangerous and uh, that word dangerous means a lot of different things to different people and what we hope over the course of this month that we're studying this is that when from now on when you think of the word dangerous you'll think of something very different than you did before and let me just explain it real quick. Uh, Several years ago this pastor named Louis Giglio preached a message and the title of the message and the main question in the message was, are you dangerous? And basically he took our nation's security alert system, which we call DEFCON, which stands for Defense Readiness Condition, and he applied it to our lives as Christians. And he basically said, hypothetically, if Satan had a DEFCON system in hell for Christians, similar to what our nation has for threats outside that you know could harm our nation where would you fall on that scale and so let me give you some examples we, we kind of put together some hypothetical DEFCON levels for Christians uh, that Satan might have and DEFCON 3 looks like this Satan is not remotely worried about you because you are no threat to his plans to discourage and destroy and just real quick in case you don't know this in case nobody's ever told you we do have an enemy. His name is Satan. And I said the first week of this series that you only have one enemy. And one of the things he's really good at is getting you to think that a lot of other people are your enemy, your spouse, your co-workers, your children, your parents, your neighbors. Those aren't your enemies. You have one enemy, his name's Satan, and his plan is to discourage and destroy. That's that's his whole reason for existing. And he comes after you and me because he knows he can't get to God and his real hatred is, is focused on God, but he knows he can't touch God and so he comes to us who God created and loves. So DEFCON 3, you, Satan's not worried about you. You are no threat to him. DEFCON 2 looks like this. You've grown in your walk with Christ to the point that now you occasionally show up on Satan's radar as kind of a blip on the screen. And, and we've said for the last couple of weeks, it doesn't mean that you get it right every time, but you've begun to walk with Christ enough and begun to, to get it enough that f- every now and then, you, bleep, bleep, show up on Satan's radar. And he stops what he's doing, and he's going, wait a minute, what's going on? And he looks at your life, and this little alert goes off, and he goes, uh-oh, i got to start paying more attention to this person because they're starting to get it. And then DEFCON 1, the highest level of alert goes like this, Satan and his legions of demons are on highest alert every day because they know you are making a daily eternal impact on the lives of others for the glory of God. And and this level also doesn't mean that you're perfect and that you do everything right, but you are walking with God on a level that your life is making a difference in the lives of others and your life is bringing glory to God. Again, doesn't mean you do it right every time, But on a daily, regular basis, you're making an eternal impact on this world, and Satan wants to do whatever he can to stop you. When I was a young believer, as a teenager, I used to hear people say all the time, The closer you get to Jesus, the harder Satan's gonna come at you. And and it took me a long time to believe that and really understand that. But listen, it's true. A lot of people think maybe the ones who are far away from God are the ones that Satan's having a field day on. Listen, he's not worried about you if you're far from God. You're right where he wants you. You're not doing anything. You're not growing closer to Christ. You're not experiencing peace, hope, and joy in your own life, and you're not spreading it to others. The people that Satan's the most worried about and he's going to pay the most attention to, and he's going to send the most attacks toward, are those ones who are intentionally, on a daily basis, growing closer and closer to Jesus Christ in such a way that it's changing you. It's changing who you are. It's changing the way you love people. It's changing the way you see the big picture of life. That's when Satan gets worried, and that's when he comes after you. So during this series, we're looking at what does it look like for us to be dangerous? How do you become dangerous? And, and we thought um, that it would be fun during this series to each week film one of our staff members doing something dangerous. And I apologize that we showed the very best video the first week. Uh, you know, I, we probably should have rethought that. But, um, and, and by the way, if you haven't, go back and watch these. Week one, I may or may not have jumped out of an airplane. You, you don't know how hard it was for me this morning because I'm trying to be humble. I want to be dangerous, okay? And it was really hard when I saw my sweatshirt that I got that says Mile High Skydiving, and knowing that I earned every thread of that sweatshirt, it was hard not to wear it this morning and just put it in your face. But <laughs> you see that I didn't do that. I just wore a normal shirt and... Uh, I'm struggling with pride, I'm just going to be honest with you. <laughs> anyway, sorry. Then last week, uh, <clears throat> Brandon rode this little bull, and uh, it was cute and all. This week, this week we uh, asked a couple of our staff members, our uh, pastoral intern, Zach, and our social media director, uh, Jamie, we asked them to go do something that some people might think is dangerous, and when you watch this video, you're going to see clearly one of them thought this was dangerous, and one of them thought it was a blast. So take a look at this.
1: Jamie, how you Hello. feeling? I'm great. Not what do we get to do today? Not. Um, well, we're hoping, third time's a charm, um, to do a very terrifying ride called the pterodactyl. Uh-huh. Emphasis on terror in the beginning of it. Yeah, the
0: terror. Um,
1: where I'm pretty much just thrown off a cliff. That's how I see it. Uh huh. Um, I don't, I don't like heights like this, so. And it's pretty high. It is. It's like at the top of a ravine. Yes. Yeah. Um, we're at Cave of the Winds. And I'm really nervous. I got sweaty hands, so. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, and it goes really fast, like 100 miles an hour. It's like straight down. Straight down. And.
0: Some of G-force.
1: Thank you for reminding me, Zach. I I really appreciate (laughs) the friend that you are to me. Um, yeah, and so, um, last time I was in a ride that involved G-Force, involved Jamie blacking out, so, so that should be really cool to see how that so goes. Almost to the top, so I hope here. you're getting ready. Um, what's that yeah. over there? I don't know, death. <laughs> 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 Something close to it. Mm-hmm. And we're about to see it for the Ooh. first
0: time.
1: Look at all that. Cool, yeah, right here. You're getting a little close. Right together. here. Don't. <laughs> <laughs> oh wow, that could. My swag pack. So Jamie, let's talk about your fear of heights for a second. Yeah, about that. Um, I have a high fear of heights. I don't like when I can see the ground. Like that? Like that ground right here? Yeah, I like that one. That's really. Because you can imagine where you might land. Um, so, this is not a ride I would choose of my own free will. So.
0: Yeah. One more time. You see this over here? Yes. Yeah. That's where you're going.
1: Yeah, thank you. Thank you for letting me. <laughs> not letting you. You must be high on that medical, thinking I won't better know better. Know that I bet I do, yeah. Kill him. Ooh. Um, Uh, Say I won't Why y'all scared to be different? I'm going to sign a waiver, just so y'all know A waiver Uh, of my life We them outsiders, that's just how we live it Uh, Say I won't And I bet Uh, I will You can say I I won't We're standing before the empty ravine that we're gonna drop into. Oh, he's yeah. oh, he's excited. He's, <laughs> he's, <laughs> yes. You think he's more excited than you are? Just a little bit. I'm from an era of fast living in mass terror. Boys covered and cover girls like mascara. I don't need to keep a gun in a mask ever. I still make them put their hands up. Ask Derek. My road manager damage all of you amateurs sneaking up on a tour bus with a demo to handle us. Well, we did it. I did it. We got in a swing, got thrown off a cliff, and it was as terrifying as my scream made it sound, but it was it was a good experience, and I'm really glad it's done. So, my question for you, though, is, are you dangerous?
0: All right. Good job, Jamie. It's right back there, and... Uh... She didn't tell you this part in the video, but she actually confessed to me this morning that she actually wet her pants when that happened, but uh, I made that part up. I'm just kidding. Zach, we're going to have to figure out something different for you next time because that, uh, that was not moving for you for sure. Uh, anyway, so last week we, in, in this series, we talked about the story of David and Goliath. And we pulled some truths from that story that I want to remind you of today. If if you missed any of these messages, please go online or to our Vimeo channel and, and watch these. I think you'll really be encouraged. But here are a couple of things that we pulled last week from the story of David and Goliath. Number one goes like this, being dangerous means moving forward in spite of your fears and obviously you just saw Jamie do that, and I know these videos are silly, but I hope if nothing else, it will be a reminder in your life that there are moments, crazy or not, where you're really afraid, or it's really uncertain what's going to happen to you, but out of your trust in God, you move forward anyway. The second thing we mentioned about Uh, David is one of the most dangerous things we can do as followers of Jesus is obey him even when it doesn't make sense. And obviously, when you think about... If you know anything about the story of David and Goliath... David was a normal-sized man and, and Goliath was literally a giant. Some accounts say that he could have been over 10 feet tall. And it, it doesn't make sense for a normal man to go fight a giant like that. And I want you to think for a minute in your life of the giants that you've faced. There have been moments in your life where surely you've had to say... This just doesn't make sense. And when you move forward anyway that's when you know you're becoming dangerous because your trust level in Jesus Christ has risen to such a point that, hey, God's going to ask me to do stuff in this life that doesn't make sense to other people, but I trust you enough, God, to move forward anyway. And then finally, uh, I love this. We said that whatever you're facing today, whatever it is you're going through, God is using this moment to prepare you for something even bigger down the road. And, and in the story of David, we talked about his faithfulness of watching his his father's sheep, and, and fighting off lions and bears, and, and how meaning, uh, meaningless of a job that that must have seemed sometimes to David, that, you know, does this even matter what I'm doing? Does anybody even notice? But God was using that moment to prepare him for the bigger moment of fighting Goliath, and he's doing the same thing in your life. I, I don't know, obviously, and I don't pretend to know what everybody in here is going through, but you're walking through stuff right now, and and the enemy wants you to think that this is the big battle, and this isn't even a big fight. God's using whatever you're walking through right now to prepare you for something even bigger down the road, and we just have to remain faithful. And so, anyway, it was a great story. Please go back and watch that. This week, we're going to talk about an amazing story of a lady in the Bible named Esther. And I I don't think I've ever preached on Esther before, and I don't know a lot of pastors that do, but this is an amazing story of someone who... Trusted God enough to be dangerous, and and what I'm going to do is I just want to tell the entire story, walk through the whole thing, then we'll come back and pull some truths out of it that I think will encourage you today, and motivate you, and challenge you to walk with Christ on a on an entirely different level than maybe you have been. All right, so let's start the story like this. There's this king named Xerxes, okay, and he has a wife who is his queen. Her name's uh, Queen Vashti, and uh, the king throws this six month party. A hundred and eighty-day party to let everyone in the kingdom know how rich and how powerful he is. Now I know when you first think of that, you're thinking how arrogant, and probably back then people were thinking the same thing: what an arrogant, pompous king we have. But he's throwing a six-month party for us, so let's go with it, right? And that's kind of what's happening in the land. And at the end of this six-month-long festival party to honor himself, the king calls for his queen, Vashti, to come to the palace to visit him. And she says no. Now, let me set the stage for you real quick. Um, In in this era, which is roughly about 3,000 years ago, if your husband called for you, especially if your husband has the word king in front of his name, you didn't say no. And, and, and we're not saying we agree with this, I think that this is terrible, and obviously we've come a long way as civilization, but women were, were kind of like property back then. And, and you did whatever your husband said to do. And in this case, your husband happens to be the king, so you really better do what he says to do, but she doesn't. And the king gets mad, and he basically uh, goes off on this deal. Now, let me stop real quick and, and say this. I know as I said all that right there, there's some women in the room that right now you really want to look at your spouse or elbow him and go, "You better not ever think that you can just snap your fingers and I'm going to come in," and you know all that kind of stuff. And and listen, I'm, I'm not trying to start fights this morning. I want us to love each other. I, you know, um, we have connections for marriage counseling, but we don't want to have to send you to that. But but. Some women are like, I ain't your puppy dog. You better not tell me, you know, whatever. And, and there are probably some men in the room today that are going, you know what, I'm, I'm pretty much her puppy dog. I pretty, whatever she tells me to do, I, I do. Any, anyway, um, that's an entirely different message. But back to the story. King Xerxes gets really mad and he basically fires the queen. He kicks her out of the palace and he says, don't ever come here again. I don't ever want to see your face again. And then he goes on a nationwide search for a new queen. And so he asked all the, all the families and all the nation to parade their daughters before him. And, and even as I'm saying that, I'm like, that's twisted. But that's how it was back then. And there was a young Jewish girl named Esther who caught his eye. Now the king, and this is important, the king didn't know she was Jewish because if he did, she, he probably never would have married her. All he knew is he saw, he liked, he wanted kind of deal. And so he calls for Esther, he makes Esther the queen, and so that kind of brings us now to the story where King Xerxes and his queen Esther are living in in the land together, okay? Now Esther has an uncle named Mordecai, who obviously is also a Jew, and one day he's sitting outside the palace gates, and he overhears a couple of the king's men talking about an assassination plan to kill the king it's a crazy story and by the way it's going to get crazier so so stay with me okay so Mordecai tells Esther who tells the king that hey a couple of your dudes are planning plotting to kill you and and it he basically Mordecai saves the king's life now hold on to that part of the story because we're going to come back and pull something out of that here in a little bit meanwhile the just kind of you know in another setting of the kingdom, the king, Xerxes, has this assistant guy named Haman. And Haman was a pretty arrogant dude, but he had been faithful to the king. And so the king promotes Haman to number two in all the land. So he, besides the king, he's the most powerful man in the, in the nation at the time. And it kind of goes to his head, as you can imagine. And one day, as Haman is leaving the palace, he runs into Mordecai. Now, l- let me set this for you. Haman, once he became second in the land, he made a decree, a law, basically, that everyone who saw him must tremble and bow down to him, just like they would tremble and bow down to King Xerxes. And most people followed, but not Mordecai. And on this day, when Haman leaves the palace, Mordecai sees him, all these other people cower down and bow down to Haman, but Mordecai doesn't. And just so you'll know, Mordecai wasn't just being a jerk, he was a Jew. And Jews worshipped the one true holy God, and, and he didn't believe in bowing down to a man, he only bowed down to his one true God. And, and so he didn't bow down to Mordecai, and Mordecai took note of it, and he didn't like it. He, 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 was, he was, you know, mad at it, and so, so he goes to the king and says, hey king, there's this group of people out there called the Jews. And they don't look like us, they don't act like us, and they, they don't follow you for sure because they're not bowing down to you, and they won't even bow down to me. And so I think we ought to do something about this. I want to put together a plan to exterminate all the Jews in the nation. Does that sound familiar? Like the 1930s in Europe? I mean, this is exactly what's happening here. This guy is this wicked, and he's, he's put together a plan to literally wipe all Jews off the face of at, at least their nation, if, if not the earth. And so um, on April 17th, believe it or not, just a few days is the anniversary, 474 BC, a decree went out. They still have records of this that said, hey, all of the Jews in this land under the, the leadership of King Xerxes, if you find them kill them, and plunder all that they own. You take it for yourself. If you can find a Jew and you can kill them, whatever they owned is yours, okay? Everybody with me? So Mordecai hears about this plan, and again he goes to Esther, who's now the queen. This crazy story, and he says, hey, Haman, the guy that works for your king, is a bad dude, and he's trying to wipe out all of us, all of your relatives, all of your people, the whole ethnic group, the whole, you know, uh, population of Jews in the land. And the Bible says that he tore his clothes and he put on burlap and ashes as a sign of sadness and mourning. And that's, that's what he did. Uh, That's what people did back then to, to show that they were mourning. And so uh, anyway, Esther finds out that Mordecai is upset and she finds out this plan that Haman is trying to kill the Jews. Now keep in mind, Esther is a Jew. And if it became known that she was a Jew, she would be on the same list that Mordecai's on, and her life would be in danger too. But Mordecai, knowing that nobody else in this nation is in a better position to save her own people than Esther, he goes to her and he basically says, hey look Esther, you're the only one who can save us. Maybe this whole queen thing, because obviously a young Jewish girl in that day would have never even dreamed of being queen of the land. And, and Esther uh, Mordecai basically says to Esther, maybe this is why you became queen. Maybe this is your moment to save us. And Esther tells him, Uncle Mordecai, do you, do you realize the law that I live under every day? Anyone in this palace who even approaches the king without being called on is immediately put to death. Now, let's just pause for a minute and think about that. That's one paranoid, arrogant, wicked king. That if you come into my palace and ask to speak with me, unless I first call on you, I'm gonna put you to death. That's the kind of law that they were living under. And Esther knew that if she went to the king on behalf of her people, she was writing her own destinies. She knew this would be the end, and she would literally be giving her life. Not just to protect her people, but just to ask if her people could be protected. Okay, so, believe it or not, and we're going to come back to this in a minute, Esther says, okay, you know what, I'll do it. Mordecai, go get all of our people and pray and fast for three days. Pray out to God to protect me, and I'll go to the king. She plans to throw a banquet, and it's really not a full banquet, it's just a really nice dinner for her, and the the attendees will be Esther, the king, and Haman. And that's all she invites to this this dinner. Now when Haman finds out he's invited to the queen's dinner, his arrogance goes up even higher and he runs out of the palace, uh, you know, so happy that I got invited to the queen's dinner with the king. And on his way out, he runs into guess who again, Mordecai. And once again, everybody else bows down and cowers around him except for Mordecai. Mordecai doesn't bow down, and so he gets furious, and he runs home, and he's kind of, you know, whining to his family, you know, I can't believe that Mordecai, and, and so his wife says, you know what, you ought to just execute Mordecai right now. Don't wait for the whole plan to take place to wipe out all the Jews. Go ahead and kill him now, and so uh, Mordecai actually builds a device that he's going to uh, execute Mordecai on, and uh, and in the middle of all this, you know, uh, excitement of, yeah, that's what I'll do. I'll take out Mordecai, his, his assistants, Haman's assistants come and say, Hey, you're late for dinner with the queen. He's like, Oh, I forgot. So he runs now in the, in the middle of all that. And we're going to come back to this in a minute too. One night the King can't sleep and he gets up and I don't know what you do when you can't sleep. A lot of times I turn on the weather channel, don't judge me, you do whatever you do. Um, But the king that night, he decided to get out the records of his kingdom. Like, they're the chronicles of everything that's happened since he became king. And as he's reading these records of his kingdom, he comes across the name Mordecai. And he remembers that it was Mordecai who saved him from the assassination plot of his two men that, that worked for him. And so the, the next day they come to this dinner and, 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 or actually before the dinner, he says to Haman, he says, hey, who was it that, uh, he, he says to Haman, hey, what should I do for a man who pleases me more than anybody else in the, in the land? And Haman, being humble, in his own mind thinks, the king must be talking about me. And so he's like, well, king, gosh, I mean, if you were going to honor someone, he, uh, then I would get the finest horse and the finest robe and throw a big party for him. And, and the king says, great, go do exactly what you said for Mordecai. And Haman's like, what? You know, and, and, and now he's even more mad. He's ready. He's ready to assassinate or, or execute Mordecai, but that's when he's called into this uh, feast. So they all sit down, the queen, the king, and Haman. And Esther knows that if she brings up saving her people it could be her death this could be the moment where she's sentenced to death but because she trusts in her God to take care of her even if it means I must die physically I trust God's plan for my life and she says to the queen uh, to the king I need you to save my people because there's a plan out there to wipe them off the face of the earth and the king grows angry, and he's like, who in the world would, would do such a thing? Who would, who would create a plan to wipe out all the queen's people? And she says, well, now that you mention it, it's Haman. And the Bible says that Haman grew pale with fright. I would too, right? He's like, uh-oh, this is not going according to plan. And long story short, the king, Xerxes, has Haman executed on the same device that Haman had created to put Mordecai to death. He is is put to death himself, and the king puts out a new decree saying, hey, all the Jews in the land, they are safe, and everyone else should worship the God that they worship. Now, it's a crazy story, right? When I, when I read this this week, I was thinking to myself, who needs Netflix? Just read your Bible, right? I mean, there's amazing stories, but what I want to do is, in the midst of this crazy story, there, there are a few things that I think we can pull out that show us how not just Esther, but how you and I can be dangerous as we walk around here on earth. The first part I want to show you is in Esther chapter 4, starting in verse 13, uh, and, and the Bible says this. You'll see where this picks up in the story. He said, it's, it says, uh, Mordecai sent this reply to Esther don 't think for a moment that because you 're in the palace, you will escape when all of the other Jews are killed. If you keep quiet at, at a time like this, deliverance and relief for the Jews might arise later in some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows if perhaps you were made queen for just for such a time as this? The first thing I want you to know about Esther and being dangerous is. Esther was dangerous because she understood and embraced the call that God had placed on her life. Now, just pause for a moment, okay? Remember that Esther is a Jew, and she knows that the king has no idea she's a Jew. And so if throughout this process that's how he finds out that she's one of these hated people, he's not only going to be upset because she's a Jew, he's going to be more upset because she lied to him or she wasn't completely honest with him. And so I can't think that she would ever imagine that God would be positioning her from such a simple little life to the moment where she might be the only hope that her people have for survival. And I love the challenge by Mordecai. Maybe this is the moment for which you were created, when we first moved here to Colorado, my oldest daughter, Kaylee, found this verse esther four fourteen and she wrote it on a little scratch piece of paper, and she taped it on the window over our sink where we would see it every day and and, and listen I, I talk about our journey here to start the bridge all the time because it's been a big part of our life, but I'm not saying we deserve any special pats on the back, but I do want you to see that it's it's scary to move your family across the country to start something from scratch with people you've never met and what I want you to see is seeing that that verse every day perhaps this is the moment for which you were created it was a reminder to us that this is not about you anyway and if anything can encourage you today if I Steve Ferris with all of my issues can do something that dangerous I can't imagine what God has in store for you that you could do that would put such a dent in the plan of the enemy that he would come after you full force because he knows you are dangerous if I can you can and I'm telling you this verse maybe this moment is the moment that you were created for has been such an encouragement to our family over the last three years now uh, let's clarify some things here okay first of all uh, we know that God is probably not calling you or me to put our lives on the line for anything. Now I'm not saying that will never change, but certainly for our faith, we live in a nation right now where here we are on a Sunday morning and no one's telling us we can't do this. And I want to remind you there are lots of countries in this world where that's not allowed. People aren't allowed to gather and sing songs to their God and, and teach out of the Bible. That would be Uh, you know, a crime that's punishable by death in many countries. We're very fortunate to do that, and so God's probably not calling you or me, either one, to, to, you know, marry a king and then save a whole race of people, but if you get stuck in that, you miss the point. Here's the point of this part of Esther's story. God has a call and a purpose for your life, your life. And in the 25 plus years that I've done ministry, I've met so many people who come to church and they love the Lord and they listen to the messages and they volunteer and they're good parents and they're good workers, but they've never stopped to think for one second, what am I here for? Like, what does God want me to do in my time here on earth? And, and let me, let me uh, put it in perspective for you. Our time on earth is so tiny compared to eternity that it can't even be measured. That's how small it is. And so our time here on earth, whether it's 70, 80, 90 years for whoever, you only have one shot at this. And so it's worth asking the question, What's God want me to do in this brief time that I have around these people in the neighborhood I live in and where I work and the kids I'm raising? Like, what do you want from me, God? And the reason I'm saying that is, is because a lot of people look at people like pastors or, or you know, other leaders of, of, of organizations or governments or whatever, and we go, well, those are the people that God has really big plans for, not me. Well, you know, they're a pastor, and so they have a special relationship with God, and so God really wants to use them, and that's not true. He wants to use you. And, and if you haven't yet, Or if you haven't in a long time, it's time for you to start asking how does God want to use me to make a dent in hell and make a positive influence on the lives of those around me? How does God want to use me to encourage someone around me in such a way that maybe I'm the difference for them, whether they live or die? You're like, man, what a guilt trip. It's not a guilt trip, it should be an adrenaline rush. That God believes in you enough that he wants to use you to divinely impact someone else's life. And here's the reason that's so hard. is because all of us have our own stuff that's going on. And all of us are carrying our own crap. And sometimes that stuff that we're carrying around gets so heavy that we can't imagine for a moment that God wants to use us because we're thinking, I can't barely keep my own head above water, let alone help someone else. That's the beauty of it. God wants you to help others through your mess. Whatever it is that you've been through or you're going through, don't just sit and pout over it and shake your fist at God and say, do your job better or why are you picking on me? Look at what you're walking through and ask yourself, how can God use this moment to allow me to encourage someone else? There are two kinds of calls, really, that God has on our life. There's what I believe is a life calling. That's like father, mother, pastor, teacher, uh, first responder, soldier, whatever it is your life calling is. And, and those, those callings are important, but they're not often the most impactful callings. The other kind of calling in life is what I call for such a time as this, callings, where God puts you in a specific place for a certain amount of time with the divine intention of using you to help other people and i don't know what that is for you you gotta ask god and figure that out but it might be right now it might be this season for you where you live It's so easy for us to forget that it's not an accident that the five or six houses around you are not on accident. The people that live in those houses ought to be your first mission field. Do you even know who they are? Have you taken time to get out and meet them and and ask them not only their names, but what's going on in your life? How can I help? The people you work with, The the gym that you go to, the, the teams that your kids play on, none of that is an accident. Those are, for such a time as this, moments where God wants to use you to help other people. You. Messy, broken you. So I challenge you again today, ask the question to God today, maybe right now in this moment. Why am I here? Why'd you put me on this earth? And then ask that question in another way. Why am I here right now? Why do you have me here? Because it's not an accident. He wants to do something with your life. So Esther was dangerous because she understood and embraced the, God, the call God had placed on her life. And the question is, are you dangerous? Do you understand the call that God has on your life? Let's keep reading. Next verse, verse 15 in Esther chapter 4 says this. Then Esther sent this reply back to Mordecai. She says, go and gather all the Jews of Susa and and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. My maids and I will do the same. And then, though it is against the law, I will go in to see the king. And look at these words. If I must die, then I must die. So Mordecai went away and did everything as Esther had ordered him to do. Esther was dangerous because she acted in faith despite the fear of losing her life. Like, this is for real. And again, probably nobody in here is God going to say, hey, you know what I'm asking for you to give me? Your very life. I want you to sacrifice your physical life for somebody else. Most likely, nobody in this room is going to be asked to do that in your lifetime. So look at this, trusting God probably won't cost you your life, but it will cost you something. It will. Now, we're living in an age where it's really popular for pastors to only tell the the warm, fuzzy, loving parts of God, but this is one of the parts of God, He will test you to see how much you trust Him, and often that tests includes asking you to sacrifice something that you love a lot I don't know what that is but look look at Luke chapter 14 verse 33 these are Jesus words he says in the same way those of you who do not give up everything you have cannot be not my disciples now don't don't read too much between the lines here he's not literally saying hey go and do a bonfire in your front yard of all your possessions because if you don't do that you're not really my disciple it's not what he's saying here Steve's paraphrase would go something like this if you're not willing to hold everything I've given you parentheses everything you've had, have in your life I've given you if you're not willing to hold it all with an open hand you can't really call yourself a follower of mine you don't really trust me when we go back and forth between this we hold it out for God and then we clench our fists and we're like okay okay and we hold. listen that's part of the process and he's not mad at you over that in fact the fact that you would even trust him enough to put it out there to begin with no matter how many times you might pull it back and then hand it out again he's just looking for hearts that trust him enough to open your fist and go I trust you with this I I trust you with what you're doing in my life. Verse 22, uh, excuse me, uh, verse 33, I I love how it says this in the message paraphrase of that same passage we just read. It goes like this. Simply put, if you're not willing to take what is dearest to you, whether plans or people, and kiss it goodbye, you can't be my disciple. When God asks you to sacrifice something or give up something in your life, He's not doing it to be ruthless or just because he gets kicks out of messing with your life. When he asks you to do something like that, he's asking to find out how much you trust him. And listen, I know this morning, giving up stuff to God is hard. And and I don't know what he's asking you for right now in your life, but I guarantee you it's not small. I don't know if you know what Lent is, but um, in the Catholic Church and and other denominations, the days, the 40 days leading up to Easter, people will give up something for Lent. And the, it kind of goes with this passage, but it's also kind of a mirror of, hey, Jesus gave up his life for me, so the 40 days leading up to Easter, I'm going to give up this uh, to prove to him and remind myself that, you know, he sacrificed for me so I can sacrifice for him. That's what Lent is, and, and as a young believer, I, I heard about Lent, and I started thinking maybe I should give up something for Lent every year, and, and usually it was something like, you know what? I'm going to give up broccoli. That's what I'm going to give up. I'm going to give up broccoli. I love you, Jesus, and I hate broccoli, and so I'll give up broccoli or whatever, and I know that's silly, but isn't that how we are? Because we're so quick to go, oh God, this little thing, here, it's yours, God. And then we walk away going, you're awesome. Good job for giving that up to God. And then when he comes and asks for the big thing, like our career or someone we love or our whole life direction, then we go, no way. Like you can have all of this, but this is off limits. This is mine. And what he's saying is, then you're not really my follower because you don't really trust me. And, and the real question is, not just are you dangerous, it's do you trust me? Because the an- if the answer to that question, do you trust me, is yes, I trust you with every part of my life, then automatically the answer to are you dangerous is yes. Being dangerous means do I trust God? And then finally today, I want to zero in on that moment where the king couldn't sleep. Remember I I mentioned that? Esther chapter 6, and this is going to be really encouraging, I hope, to you today. Esther chapter 6, verse 1, we're in the middle of this story, and and everything's about to be be exposed, and they're about to have this big dinner. And remember that night, the king couldn't sleep. And so we pick it up in verse 1. The Bible says this. That night, the king had trouble sleeping. So he ordered an attendant to bring him the book of history, of his reign so it could be read to him and in those records he he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of these guys and no I'm not going to pronounce them and no I can't pronounce them and neither can you so don't judge me two of the eunuchs who guarded the door of the king's private quarters they had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes and in verse three he says what reward or recognition did we give to Mordecai for this it just dawns on him like did we thank this guy and as the tennis said nothing has been done for him here's what I want you to see from this moment because listen Mordecai in this moment is thinking he's a dead man you, you get my point like he knows Haman's got a hit out on his life he knows that he's about to be the first Jew put to death to make a point to everyone else that you better bow down when Haman or the king walk through he he knows he's a dead man But in that moment, in Mordecai's darkest moment, where he thinks there's no hope, God's working. God God makes it so the king can't sleep. And he puts it on the king's heart to go and read the history of of the land so that the king can remember what Mordecai did for him. So this time, instead of Mordecai saving the king's life, the king saves Mordecai's. And the truth for us is this. God is always working behind the scenes just not necessarily according to your schedule or your wishes but he's working and I want you to think about whatever's going on in your life right now however heavy it may be and I want you to tell yourself just in your own heart you don't say it out loud but just in your own heart right now sitting where you are tell yourself God's working in this He hasn't hasn't forgotten me in this dark moment. He's working. Like right now, even though I can't feel it or see it, he's working on my behalf. Now, time out. What I have to sacrifice is my timeline and the plan that I have for my own life because he may not be working according to those things. He's working for something better. And that's really the question that it boils down to for us today is not just do you trust God, but do you trust Him that whatever He's offering in return for what He's asking you to give Him, do you really believe that what He's offering is better? Look at this. God knows what you need. He knows what you need in this moment And when you need it, way better than you and I do. He knows. And that's what He's working on. And the struggle for we humans is the difference between what we need and what we think we want. And can I just challenge you as we close today? The secret to that, again, and and if you come here all the time, you go, man, we always come back to this. It's because this is the secret if you want it to be easier and closer like if you want what you need and what you think you want to look more alike so it's not so hard to give up what you think you want for what God knows you need if you want that to be closer together all you gotta do is get to know Jesus better intentionally spend more time with him because the closer you get to him, the more you're gonna know him and trust him. And then it won't be so hard to give the other stuff up. It's where we stand over here and we kind of hold things white knuckled and, and we go, this is mine, that it makes it so hard to hold an open hand and say, hey God, whatever I got, you can have because I trust you. And I trust that you love me enough to give me something better In return. And we close with this today. When you learn to trust God more than you trust other people or yourself, you'll know you're dangerous. Question is, do you? Do you really trust Him? Let's pray together. Thank you, God. That today, right now, in this moment, you are working on our behalf. You're working behind the scenes in whatever's going on in our lives, whether it's financial, whether it's relationships, our career, our kids, our parents, our future, whatever that may be, God, you're working. You're working right now. We can't always see it, but you're working. My prayer for us this morning, Lord, is that we would align our schedule and our timeline and what we hope for with what you want for us. Because, Lord, we confess today what you want for us is far better than what we want for ourselves. That's hard for us, God. It's hard for us to grasp sometimes so will you teach us to believe will you teach us to have faith thank you for loving us thank you for believing in us thank you Lord that you have divinely positioned each one of your children to be dangers to the kingdom of hell to make such an impact on those around us that Satan takes notice And so the next time when we're attacked by the enemy, we're not surprised and we're actually thankful because it's just a sign that we're becoming more like you. Thanks, Jesus. It's in your name we pray. Amen.